Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I'm joined by Amal Saad. Amal is a, a, an assistant professor at the Lebanese University in Beirut. She's written extensively on, on a great many aspects of Lebanese politics, particularly focusing on, on Hezbollah and the group's behavior in the contemporary Middle East. We also had the pleasure of welcoming Amal to Lancaster for a SEPAD workshop where we looked at transnational networks across the Middle East and beyond. And this is going to be part of a special issue of Global Discourse coming out in the in the summer of 2019. Amal, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's really exciting, Amal. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really keen to delve deeper into some of the work that you've been doing. Before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in, in working in, in politics broadly, please? That is a good question. It had a lot to do with the Palestinian cause. Um, as sort of, a, a, I, I was born and raised in England, and as a teen growing up in England, I was very much aware of um, what was going on in Palestine. And during the first Intifada in 1987, I became quite active. And I remember going to school wearing the kafiyye, and also, right. this was, you know, recalling that around this time as well, Israel had invaded Lebanon in 1982. Sure. And the resistance in Lebanon was, you know, also going on at the time. And I was very, very radicalized, I think, and politicized by these events, both in Palestine and Lebanon. And so that got me really, obviously, more interested than I probably would have in politics for a sort of a young teenager. Yeah. Right. Okay, so it's it's quite a, a an active sort of personal investment in in regional politics, I guess that that provoked a lot of this interest. And then you you decided to study political science politics at at undergraduate level, did you? Actually, I studied sociology for okay. my BA. And, yeah, and uh, I, I was I actually wanted to do political science, but I had to take certain math courses, and I was really bad at math, uh, right. uh, statistics and stuff. Okay, so sure. I ended up doing sociology, and then I did my master's in political science, and then my PhD in Islamic politics. Um, but that that was always my interest, you know. Since I was a child, actually, I would I would read political books, not understanding a lot of them. But, right. Um, can, yeah. Can you remember what what those political books were? What was it that you were reading that that had piqued your interest at that age? It was, I remember at the age of ten, I started reading a book called The Palestine Question. Right. Uh, yeah, not understanding a lot of it, but I think it played books like that played a very important role in my political socialization. Sure. And um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. And then when we came back to Lebanon, when I was around sixteen, my father brought us back to live in Lebanon. And in fact, the civil war, it was sort of the last year of the civil war. It was around 1989. Um, and I remember what was what really triggered my interest. In fact, this would link my interest to Hezbollah directly, is coming here and my, my parents bought a house. And they my dad hired some painters, I recall, to, build, to paint the house. Right. And he, he told me, do you see these two guys? These are resistance fighters. And this is what they do. This is their job, kind of, aside from resist, resistance. And I, I remember once we went to one of their houses for right. a visit. Yeah. And I'll never forget this image of 
entering the house, and it was a very, very modest house in um, a working class neighborhood. And the there wasn't like we sat on the floor, but the the painter he showed me all his books. They were in Arabic, but they were of all of Western philosophers. And I was very interested in philosophy at the time. Right. And I remember being struck by, you know, like Descartes and Kant and, you know, all these Western philosophers. And it really intrigued me. Yeah. Like how, you know, um, politically aware, educated these people were. It didn't fit my kind of um, stereotype of what a fighter should be should be like or should be doing sure. or what he should know yeah yeah so w- when you when your father said these are resistance fighters can you remember what you understood by resistance what did that what did that trigger in you well i was, I was extremely sympathetic to the resistance of course um lebanon was still partially occupied yeah now uh you know in, in 2000 the israelis withdrew but uh, you know this was a point at which they were still occupying Lebanon. And I'm from the south as well. Like My father is from the south of Lebanon, and we would go to the village at times. I actually lived in the in the village for six months during the civil war right. to escape the bombardment. And so for me, this was something, you know, I, I felt it viscerally, you know, like the sort of pride I had in the resistance. Um, and so, so to see that these fighters you know, were also people who have had a, a lot of political awareness, way more than I did, in fact. And it was a sort of theoretically informed awareness. That This is what really intrigued me, to be honest, that it wasn't just praxis yeah. and, you know, political indoctrination, but, you know, a lot of these people were also very well read and... and and thought that's I think that's what I wasn't aware of uh, growing up in England you know even though I was very sympathetic to the resistance I never I never really sort of envisaged resistance fighters being uh, people who engaged with western thought and yeah. so that that's yeah that's what really I found very very fascinating interesting so so you went through your your sociology and your your political science masters and then you did a, a PhD what was that in Amal? My PhD was actually, it was at Birmingham University, and it was under Islamic studies. But sure. obviously, I'm not, I'm not an expert in Islamic studies. It was Islamic politics. And so, yeah, I did my PhD on Hezbollah's political thoughts. It's inter- what I call the in- its intellectual structure. And that later became uh, the basis for my book, for my first book on Hezbollah. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that that PhD then? What was it that you were trying to do? What were you engaging with? And, and who were some of the influences? Hmm. Um, you know, basically at the time, there were very few books on Hezbollah. But I think there were only like two. And one of them was about the hostage, hostage crisis. Um, and the other one was a really badly researched book. Right. By Martin Kramer, I remember. And I, I just wanted to debunk that specific book. And in fact, I sort of quoted it, referenced it a lot in my book, <laughs> uh, in terms of all the methodological and epistemological flaws in that book. It was just, it was so badly done. And in fact, he didn't interview a single Hezbollah official. He interviewed CIA and Mossad officials for a right. book on Hezbollah. So I was really motivated by 
this need to sort of, you know, set the record straight, really understand this movement in an objective manner. And when I say objective, I was aware of my own positionality. I was aware I was someone who was very sympathetic to resistance, was anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist. And yet I was also committed to being objective, you know, that it's not the same thing being objective and being neutral, obviously. So I can yeah. I can be biased like everyone else, like every other academic out there. But I must be sort of committed to conveying the reality as best I can and sort of entertaining any cognitive dissonance that comes up. And that, that is what I sought to do. Um, and I, a lot of the book was, in fact, just sort of responding to all these sort of myths about Hezbollah that were very prevalent in media, not just in academia, but a lot of it in media. Um, and it was it was a great challenge as well to be able to do a book where which had actual fieldwork and interviews. It wasn't very easy, but I was able to interview several Hezbollah officials on several, you know, several yeah. interviews per official, not just even one. And to gain a much deeper understanding than, you know, I would have done if I was, say, based in the West and sure. like a lot, lot lots of academics today um, who don't have this access and just sort of writing from a distance. So I felt like I was in a sort of privileged kind of participant observer mode. Right. And, yeah. Amal, there's, there's so much that I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> so before we go into the, the process of, of talking to, to people from Hezbollah, it, it seems to me that you've got a very personal interest in this, that that your own personal history is 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 closely tied up to ideas of resistance because of your your socialization, if I may. How yeah. do you then try and address that in your positionality? Because I mean you you've pointed out that there are potential issues with this. So just yeah. just how do you respond to to these these types of challenges when they come up? Yeah. I think, you know, self relevant self-reflexivity is key and it's something that you strengthen you know with time over you know with age it actually becomes habitual and I've always been very sort of um, aware of my own biases my own cognitive dissonance my own selective observation and this is something I work on a lot in myself I see it a lot in other academics in in policy wonks in journalists and unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of these people don't see it in themselves. And, you know, one thing I have noticed, though, and this has helped me a lot, is to understand how these the system works. It's basically, there's this sort of liberal kind of zero point. That's the zero point. It's kind of like a meta-ideology liberalism or, say, in, in academia, in, in um, media, it, it, it governs these different sort of knowledge production sites, knowledge production. And just to sort of understand that when I'm accused of being biased, that's coming from a place of bias itself. So I used to be a bit too concerned with, oh, no, look, they're attacking me. They're saying I'm biased. They're saying I'm not, I don't have enough critical distance. But then I started to become more and more aware that this, this is, in fact, not just a bias. It's a bias that has been kind of packaged as a zero point, as neutrality. And, yeah. and that's what made sort of more aware that increasingly how all knowledge is socially constructed. And so when I talk about reality, I'm aware also that not reality is socially constructed. It's sure. just, I yeah. think, trying to, for me, the real sort of litmus test of whether I'm being objective is, am I able 
to basically withstand cognitive dissonance because I think that's what a lot of people have a problem with is when they feel that dissonance they they choose to to kind of repress it and just to um you know basically um go with stick to their narrative and yes there will be people who will say oh you're still you're still doing that but again that's coming from their positionality yeah and so i'm aware now how all of this all knowledge is just the product of this sort of agreement reality among academics there's this epistemic community it's all cross referential you know everyone quotes everyone else in this community the parameters are clearly delineated and just sort of understanding that even if you are being accused of falling outside these parameters that you know they they're also biased too so i think you know that's what counts in the end is just being extremely conscious self reflexive about this yeah and i i think that that's particularly important for those of us working on these these incredibly sensitive areas and and those of us that that aren't necessarily able to have the distance that that others might do per se um yeah w- with that and i guess one of the one of the benefits of not having distance means that you are you are able to have a great degree of access and i yeah. think one of the one of the most fascinating parts of your work to a lot of people leaving aside the, the rich theoretical positions that you adopt is your your engagement with with people in Hezbollah itself with with the organization letting the organization speak and yeah. i i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about about doing that amal and the the challenges of of doing that please yeah i think well for my first book um i had access to Hezbollah officials but i was i was also teaching I mean at the time at the Lebanese American University which is a very different academic setting from where I teach now which is the state Lebanese University and in fact what's I think I'm very privileged I'm more privileged now in fact for my second book in that not only do I still have this access to officials which I've maintained over the you know past couple of decades or decade and a half I've forgotten how long now um <laughs> is that i also have access a lot of these people are my colleagues a lot of hezbollah officials are my colleagues teaching at the university and sure. even more interestingly is that a lot of my students are hezbollah they're hezbollah members or fighters or well, you know people who have family members in the in in the resistance and so on so being able to engage with the community the hezbollah community or society itself is something i lacked in my first book and it gives you a much much richer understanding into the the hezbollah's constituency because when we talk about hezbollah's you know ideology or politics or you know regional um you know role etc you can't isolate it from the community or or wider society in which it's anchored in and that's what we mean when we talk about hezbollah you know as a definition what is hezbollah it's all that as well So if you just talk to officials you're never going to get that kind of understanding that comes with sort of informal and daily engagement yeah. with actual people who are not spokespeople for the organization and to do it through you know not just through talking about the organization but through talking about other topics say you know if, if I'm teaching a course a political course or a sociology course or whatever just to like be talking about other concepts and and seeing there 
sort of unique insights they bring in when discussing these concepts or developments that aren't necessarily tied to Hezbollah or, say, you know, the Syria or whatever. But that, that's also, I think, extremely enriching. And I feel that, that with this book, I've started to understand the shortcomings of my first book and to understand how I've kind of developed as an academic, that I now would, I'm someone who would always sort of require this type of in-depth engagement with the topic that I'm studying. And I understand that's often very hard for academics who don't have such access. Um, And therefore, I think what I would do is always sort of stick to topics that grant me this kind of access. If I'm going to write about them, I don't think I'd be someone who would like venture into, you know, writing about Venutse, Hezbollah commanders uh, and officials. And just sort of reading the content of these interviews is automatically a huge sort of red flag because knowing Hezbollah, they would never say this to anyone out loud, you know, even not just sort of Western journalists, but to anyone else. Yeah. Uh, And then the idea that they have this access when I know, like I had to jump through hoops, even with these ties I've developed over the years, I had to wait approximately eight months to be given access for interviews for my second book that I'm working on now. And it was a, there were times where I was told, no, it's probably not going to happen. And so after waiting for eight months, this was after I signed my book contract. Yeah. Only then did I get the okay. And all my interviews have to be done through the media office. Now, there have been, I've had students that I sort of in sort of mobilization units or whatever that I thought would be very interesting to talk to for the book. And I'm their professor. They have a lot of trust in me. Yeah. I'm, fr- I'm from the same community as them. And they've declined to be interviewed by me. They've right. said, sorry, no, you need authorization. You can't do this off the record. Like I've tried to sort of use off the record interviews in that way. And I haven't been very successful sure. because there is a very strict um, you know, organizational pros- procedure that is carried out. And, you know, even students are very wary of overstepping their bounds, of not working through that system. So to think that someone out- outside the community, someone from another, co- you know, a Western journalist, Western journalists are widely, you know, perceived in Lebanon and in the Arab world as spies, to be honest. <laughs> like yeah. With them, yeah, yeah. To be so audacious as to claim that they've spoken to officials and commanders and fighters who've been, you know, that they're privy to this information is just mind-boggling. It's extremely arrogant. You know, if they've been granted access, they should ask themselves, are these people really Hezbollah or am I being duped? I would think the same if I thought I was interviewing, you know, former CIA agents who just, or even current CIA agents who just (laughs) sort of spilled the beans on the U.S. to me. Like, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. Sure. And I guess this is this is one of the the many issues about engaging with an organisation that is that is not necessarily always going to be as transparent about membership about its about its involvement and its activities. And this is where that the positionality and self reflection is absolutely central. That's right, because you you also have to understand that Hezbollah, you know, like even when talking off the record with people in the organization or affiliated with the organization, there is going to be also a lot of self-censorship. So even as someone with that access, with those ties, with that trust, you know, that they have in you as, you know, a participant observer or whatever, you also have to be very aware about their positionality and where they're coming from and about, obviously, the need to, to keep things 
secret. You know, it's it's very understandable, and not just for Hezbollah. This applies to any political organization or state institution. Uh, if you talk to the Lebanese army, you'd find the same thing going on as well. If you talk to someone in the Lebanese government uh, or any other government, I think so. It's in- extremely arrogant to assume that you've been given information that is indisputable without problematizing it, without you know questioning your sources and so on. That, that's a, and there's a whole industry out there that is doing this and publishers. This is what really boggles the mind is how publishers, like major news news networks, just publish this stuff yeah. without questioning its authenticity. Is is crazy? It's just they, I'm sure a lot of these editors know or question these sources, but don't care honestly. And that kind of very you know this kind of rigor, this lack, complete lack of rigor, is not something you would ever find if they were studying or sorry covering rather, you know something going on in the West. Yeah. I am sure they would want to verify these sources, they'd be a lot more circumspect about verifying these sources than when you're covering, you know, uh, somewhere in the global south. They're a lot more, um, you know, lax about it. So covering this then, and and you've done a a great deal of of media work, Amal, and those uh, those listeners who who can remember the the summer of 2006 may recall seeing you on, on myriad TV channels. How have you found... Speaking about about the group and about events in in Lebanon to to Western outlets, bombing civilian sites indiscriminately, even per, you know, deliberately, to be honest. And it was, I think, that was sort of a moment whereby they they kind of try to balance a little bit more than in the past and give the other side a voice. And it was because of the mounting casualties on the Lebanese side, and so it was, I think, that facilitated a little bit. Um, my ability to sort of convey, I wouldn't just say the Hezbollah position, but the Lebanese position at the time. Yeah. And the Lebanese back then were overwhelmingly supportive of Hezbollah vis-a-vis Israel. Sure. And this was the, this was after 2005, when the Lebanese were very polarized after the Hadidi assassination. You had the March 14 camp versus March 8 camp. Yeah. And so 2006 was sort of a, rally, a rallying moment, a unifying moment, if only for a brief moment of time. And... So, so I think that kind of made things easier. Uh, but I felt it was a duty back then to to do this media work. And I was very lucky that media wanted to speak to people. Well, in fact, it was because Hezbollah officials were obviously not able to speak publicly. They were all targeted um, by Israel. They, you know, so it, it, they needed someone who had sort of contact with the movement still to be able to speak and talk about their thinking and so on. And, and that kind of, you know, made it easier for me to convey this point of view. And I guess, I guess it's, it's important that that view is, is articulated. Of course, it, it can result in some difficult, uh, difficult situations arising, for instance, and I, I hope you all, you'll understand what I'm about to say, Amal, as just being an interviewer, as allegations of being a Hezbollah apologist, of someone who ignores the... Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, um, it depends, I think what's interesting is the word violence here. Sure. Is when yeah. we talk about violence, like, are we talking about... Usually, the, the connotations of the term violence are, you know, terrorism, um, offensive violence, if it's in the context of warfare, 
um, you know, these are repression internally. These are things you think about. You know, as far as I've seen, Hezbollah has been in a defensive position in Lebanon, vis-a-vis Israel I'm talking about now. Sure. And it's, so I don't see this as just violence. I see this as defensive warfare. And I know many other people share that view. Yeah. And back then I was called an apologist, mind you, not only today. Um, regarding its war with the jihad, takfiri jihadis, but back in 2006, honestly, the same people were also um, unhappy with anyone who tried to be objective about Hezbollah's um, position and its its resistance to Israel. They would even use resistance in quotation marks, yeah. which I've always found in, in, in scare quotes. Like that, that to me, that is really ridiculous because. That isn't, you know, resistance to occupation is not one of those murky, ambiguous concepts like terrorism. It's very clear-cut. There's an actual, very clear-cut dictionary definition yeah. for this. And in political science, it's a it's a very, in international law, it's an international law concept, you know, yeah. that is widely used in international law. So in my mind, like, that was already their biases, you know, just sort of screaming in the in the headlines or... or sure. Article. So, for, yes, if, if you want to call it apologism, you know, that that's, that's bizarre because it's, in fact, me being descriptive yeah. uh, uh, and factual. Now, the thing with Syria is, like, after 2012, obviously, we entered a much more problematic period because of the loss of support that Hezbollah, um, you know, had to deal with after its, its role in Syria. And loss of Arab support, I'm saying here, and because of sort of wider Sunni Shia tensions in the region. Yeah. So, so anybody who wasn't, who didn't, for example, call the uprising in Syria a revolution, was branded an apologist. Um, yeah. You know, forget about any kind of position you have on Hezbollah. So, just your choice of terms: if you call it a regime or a government, if you call it a revolution or an uprising, if you call Hezbollah and Iran and and all the other players who later entered the fray in Syria, if you call them, um, you know, uh, resistance, or if you call them whatever, that, that, you know, for example, people who support the Syrian opposition call this an occupation, which is absolutely absurd. I'm very careful in these contexts. I, I've really sort of developed a tougher skin over the years, a thicker skin, because initially, you know, I would be, every academic, I think, the worst nightmare is to be labeled an apologist because <laughs> you know? yeah. it detracts from your credibility sure. uh, as an academic. And, and so I was always very, you know, like upset by these allegations. But later on, I started to see like they were coming from a place from people who were extremely biased, like in, in, in really like in a laughable way even. Um, so it was essentially what it deteriorated into a kind of just sort of mudslinging, uh, you know, ad hominem attacks. There is no debate. Honestly, there is no debate on um, not just Syria, but the, the, the whole sort of sectarian divide in the region. This is not a real debate we're having. And what really puzzled me was the number of of white, white academics and journalists and policy wonks who believe they spoke for the Syrian people. It wasn't even a debate or accusations being made by Syrians. In fact, that they were a minority. It was mainly from white people. And so the question always is, is, you know, what, what's your motive? Where are you coming from? Honestly, who are you to even enter this debate, to believe you have a right to have a voice in this debate? This is not your battle. So 
that's the first thing I kind of did was to sort of just dismiss anything that wasn't coming from the region yeah. uh, as, as a credible kind of discussion because it wasn't a discussion. And so in terms of being labeled an apologist, I think that that's just become a very, um, it's, it's the easiest term for people to use when they don't like what you're saying. You know, it's, it's yeah. just to call you an apologist, to call you someone who is an apologist for a dictator for and so on. And the, the truth is, like, the Hezbollah's role in the Syrian conflict, I, I, I teach international law, I teach a number of international law courses. And although I'm not, I'm not trained in international law myself, I've, I've become very familiar with, you know, the, the, this body of literature. And I've become more and more aware of how I should use these arguments in kind of defending myself from these allegations or sort of just um, basically uh, shedding light on Hezbollah's role and its allies is that Hezbollah's role in Syria is not a violation of international law. Uh, Syria, you know, you can call it a dictatorship, a regime, call it what you may, like any other state has the right to launch a counterinsurgency. Of course, there are international humanitarian laws that need to be observed and respected. And sadly, in any war, the, I don't know a single war in the world where these laws have been respected. You know, the idea of collateral damage and minimizing it is, is just unheard of in any war. And of course, there are some wars that are uglier than others. But if that's going to be the sole criterion by which we judge one another as academics, then we're go all going to end up being apologists. Because yeah. every side we support is going to, whether intentionally or not, going to kill civilians. And so that is not a very useful, it's not very, it's, it's definitely not analytically useful. And I think what's a lot more useful here is to, we, we need kind of like a point of reference. And that point of reference should be international law, I think, if this is what we're going to talk about. When we want to talk about, if we want to use moral terms, let's use, you know, um, you know, violations of law, of international law. I think that's something we can all agree on is bad, rather than just um, throwing these labels around. Um, yeah. Sure. Well, Amal, we've taken up a great deal of your time, and this has been incredibly thought-provoking, and, and and there's a great deal that, that I also have to ask you. Um, we're going to have to have a follow-up session at some point, I'm sure, to, to really digest what we've gone through here today. But I have one final question, if I may. And and again, I'm, I'm very, very sorry for even daring to ask this, but when should we expect the book, Amal? <laughs> yes, thank you. Uh, that's very funny. Um, right. I've been, I've been, it's, you know, I teach four courses uh, per semester. I teach eight courses a year at my university. So this has been, it's been even harder with that type of course load. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, I signed my contract in late 2016. So now my new, my latest deadline is March, April 2020. So hopefully this time next year. Wonderful. I, I will have submitted it, yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Good luck with it. I, I really do look forward to, to, to reading it. I think that you're adding so much to these debates that that people really do need to engage with. So thank you so much for talking to us, Amal. It's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I look forward to reading what else, uh, whatever else you're putting out in the not-too-distant future. So thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thanks for having me. Until next time, thank you very much for listening.